Hello, everyone. Welcome to the SmackDown 6 podcast. The podcast is covering the SmackDown 6 era of, you guessed it, SmackDown. Sometimes that's how you describe it. It's also described as the beginning of the Ruthless Aggression era. I guess I could have called this podcast the Ruthless Aggression podcast, but when would I have ended it? It's so much harder to know. I'm your host, Matt Vaughn. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're covering Judgment Day 2003, a pay-per-view that will live in infamy. I don't really mean that, but you're listening to it now and maybe watch it and it's an interesting show. I'm excited to break it down. And each week on the podcast, I'm joined by uh, a special guest co-host. And this week, I was like, you know what? I need to bring somebody back who was last on a pay-per-view to talk about another pay-per-view with a very dramatic, end-time-sounding name. He was here for Armageddon. He's back for Judgment Day. It's Chris Dimitrenko. How are you doing, Chris? Doing great, Matt. Um, I'm sorry for the beeping in the background. I've got an oven pizza in nice. the oven. And uh, so I put the timer on. But then I didn't realize that, wow, it would beep when uh, when you were doing your intro. So I That's apologize, uh, but just bringing some uh, delicio realness to the podcast here. So I'm doing great. I love it. Is it delivery? No, it's on a podcast. It's delicio, yeah. So I just want to encourage you folks, if you do want to, if you want to play the, the SmackDown 6, the play along game, uh, then you have to start a pizza 15 minutes ago and then and then eat it <laughs> with us now. Which would be good. I could go for I could go for some za. Unfortunately, we are you know, we're you know quite a, a distance apart from each other right now, um, far more than six feet, as it were. So uh, that's too bad. But yeah, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you have the pizza. I didn't hear the beeping. I'm looking forward to it. Having you here. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here, and uh, this was a a really fun pay per view. So I'm I'm eager to hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, I, absolutely, and, and likewise, likewise, Chris, absolutely. Now the thing the thing I think is interesting about this. Uh, and this is my, my question to you. I'd like to ask a question every time in the podcast here because Judgment Day uh, 2003 is the last non-Big Four joint brand pay-per-view. That sounds confusing. I'm going to break it down for you. So we are about to embark on an era where every other pay-per-view is a Raw exclusive or a SmackDown exclusive pay-per-view except for the Big Four, which at this time was SummerSlam, uh, Survivor Series, Royal Rumble, and WrestleMania. So things are about to shift yeah, on the podcast, really, because the shows we're going to cover are a little bit, going to be a little bit different. Uh, and in the WWE landscape, where they are, the, both brands are changing how they're building things up. Uh, and so, my question to you, Chris, when you, when you watch Judgment Day, 2003, when you're watching, are you thinking, you know what? These shows definitely have enough to carry on a whole pay-per-view all by themselves. I could watch. This is this is definitely a sign that SmackDown has enough pay-per-view quality matches that I would buy those on my own. What, what, what did you think of that? Ooh, I don't know that would be a tough sell for me personally yeah i i would say no yeah it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing we're obviously it's gonna be something we're gonna break down for a, a long a large part of this podcast for sure but yeah i mean there's some you know there, there's some good matches here uh you know if i'm just thinking about from the smackdown perspective but it is hard to imagine those matches existing and then adding like three more and it being like a good, exciting show that you're like, yeah, I want to work up to that. It just it's tough. Like imagine if you'd add a cruiserweight match, uh, another Rikishi match or something. I don't know <laughs> what you even do. Like that's 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 all I can think of is what you would do to make it work. Well, you have literally four women. There's only four women. Right. There's Sable, Tori, Nidia. Don Marie. Don Marie, that's it. Um, that's it. You can only really get one match out of that. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, I'll be curious to see how they're able to do that and whether they're able to do it successfully. Right. And how did you, as a Canadian man, handle the constant 
appearance of Judgment Day with Judgment spelled that way, the American style Judgment. Oh, it does. It does look wrong. I incredibly look wrong looking. Yeah, it really does. Um, so I was judging them for that. Right, judging them but, with an e e i n g, which yeah. is wrong. But we're still gonna do that. <laughs> I mean, I feel like they should really pick titles that have a universal spelling across Canada and the United States. I don't think that's too much to ask. That's a great point. That's a great point. I know that. Uh, I believe there is an upcoming WWE behavior called Day One. I think those both those words are relatively uh, uniform. I think that's me on Jamie Hurst. Yeah, that's safe. Yeah, I think that's good. So yeah, we're talking about Judgment Day 2003. It aired May 18th, 2003. It emanated from the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte, North Carolina. So you know, Ric Flair is going to be involved, and who knows? Maybe his daughter Ashley Flair will be in the arena. I don't know. She doesn't show up, and we don't know. But I'm referring to Charlotte Flair, who I presume is probably backstage at the very least. Probably. I would think. Yeah. And so every time we're talking about the pay-per-views on the podcast, uh, let's talk about the buy rate. Buy rate is this magic number that is hard to make sense of. If I understand correctly, it is a numerical value that indicates the number of households that bought the show, and it's representative of a number of of all the possible households that could have bought the show, essentially. So uh, if you live in a place where you couldn't get pay-per-view, you not getting it doesn't count against this number. And so it's a sign of health. It's kind of I always avoid trying to say like ah oh, it's kind of like it's like voodoo because <laughs> it's a number that I don't understand that holds a value that I can't quite explain but I think this makes sense when I say that this year Judgment Day 2003 it did a 0.58 a 0.58 buy rate the year before it did a 0.94 which is pretty precipitous loss there because that's at almost a one whereas this one was a 0.58 and the next year Judgment Day 2004 did a 0.38 so they're on a sharp downslope, which is tr- just true of the pro- product at the time. You know, they are coming off of the Attitude Era when things were hot and they're starting to cool down. And this was a time where it, it dropped more year over year from 2002 to 2003 and less so, but still significantly from 2003 to 2004. And uh, I'm not sure if those ever if those numbers ever rebounded in a real way before um, they went to the, the all network version there in the mid 2010s. But, um, yeah, it's not a great sign for Judgment Day. No. Yeah. And just with, yeah, I'm trying to figure out, like, just with 2002, I think Hulk Hogan was defending his the WWE title against Undertaker. I think he lost, if I'm not mistaken, um, just before the purview of this podcast. So, Well, if only this pay-per-view had a big marquee name like Hulk Hogan, but we don't. We don't have him. He's not there. He's, no, he's nowhere to be seen on the show, not even close. Uh, and so to get into this week's pay-per-view, let's talk about last week's episode to catch you up. So in last week's episode of SmackDown, Rey Mysterio came back from his injury, and he promptly got snatched by Big Show, and then saved by Brock Lesnar. So that's good. Rey's like a Rey's just like a little guy who needs to be saved here, which is a little bit unfortunate for him. Uh, also, Eddie Guerrero hit Shelton Benjamin over the head with that big portrait of Kurt Angle that Team Angle's been carrying around, so it's very satisfying. And Vince McMahon fielded offers to beat up and unmask Mr. America from a bunch of bad guys before he said that Roddy Piper would do it at Judgment Day. And, we were, and the children rejoiced. Everyone was happy, and it just felt right. You, like, you just had the show where every hot heel guy, John Cena, uh, Matt Hardy, the FBI, they're all like, we want to do it. And he's like, you know what? Roddy Piper. And it's like, who wants this? 2003. <laughs> who wants this, truly? I do. I yeah, think, yeah. Absolutely. I, I'm sure. excited to talk about this match with you then. Yeah. No, I I want to see this happen. Why not? What's wrong with they're, you? They're old. It's sure. Not, it's, it's not 1987 anymore. 
Um, but the thing is, they seem much, much less old from this perspective now, going back to 2003. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking about how old Hulk Hogan looks now versus 2003. Hey, not bad, Hulk Hogan. Sure, I want to see him in a match. He's in his late 40s here. It's actually kind of impressive. And there's I will there is an age point that I want to make later on in the show when Roddy Piper talks to a certain raw superstar backstage. Uh, and we will get to it when we get to it there, because there's it's it's shocking when I think about it now. Now, don't you think that Hulk Hogan, even in 2021, could still put on a match? I do. Probably. Maybe. I think but I think I've heard that he has some mobility issues over the last few years, in addition to his personal issues and the things he said that have made him. Uh, cancelable. Uh, but he, I think he has, he's like t- harder for him getting around. I assume he's got hips and knees are the big question marks, right? Like, I mean, that's, it's, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going to drop the leg on guys, you know, if you're running across the country right. and just beating guys one, two, three, that leg drop every night, I mean, you're going to sacrifice something. Yeah, I suppose. Um, I mean, WWE did decide that they have uncanceled him. They have. Uh, because he, so they, they, the arbiters of who is and who isn't canceled, they have decided, nope. Not canceled anymore. <laughs> I mean, the idea that you could cancel Hulk Hogan is just so it was hard. Like it's hard to imagine that. Anyway, like, did they you tried. cancel America. Right. Exactly. That's right. How could you? Although yeah. in recent years, I think it would be very helpful we did cancel America. There's <laughs> a couple of times where I was like, you know what? Maybe they maybe we just just stop it. Stop doing that for a while. I Don't read into that too much. I think you have American in, like listeners out there. Probably. Absolutely. So my absolutely my best listeners are. Wonderful American people who are not representative of uh, the larger polarized issues in their country. And I think they're great. And the favorite wrestlers are the best. And I hope they all become world champions. There you go. That's how I feel about it. So if that's you, just know that you're like, does he mean Finn Balor? Does he mean CM Punk? <laughs> I do. I mean, but all those people. Okay. Absolutely. So let's talk about Sunday Night Heat. Because that is the free show for Judgment Day 2003. And on that show... The Hurricane blew Steven Richards away with a Shining Wizard, which is a very 2003 indie wrestling move, and he pinned him 1-2-3. So the Hurricane took out Steven Richards before Judgment Day 2003. And so we're going to get into this week's episode, which we're covering Judgment Day 2003. And uh, just a reminder that, like, every pay-per-view that we cover, uh, we're largely skipping the Raw matches. This, this is a SmackDown podcast. But, you know, for the completionists out there and for my own sake, uh, we'll still tell you how the match ended. So we won't go in depth. We will tell you the end result. Oh, that, that'll be a big reveal for me too, actually, because nice. I just watched the SmackDown matches. So perfect. I'll be, so listeners, I'll be finding out when you find out. Oh, this is great. This is like you want you do the you pure skipping, which I think is fantastic. And so when you go on your di- right now, I'm yeah, I'm trying to get my oven pizza out of the oven while holding my laptop, and. <laughs> I just feel like I don't have enough hands for this exercise, but I'll I'll take you through it. So I'm getting an oven mitt now because maybe if Perfect. I like pull out the like the rack a little bit. Yeah, that's a, that's essential. And I just gotta say, yeah. I re- I really don't want you to put your laptop in the oven. Like, don't do a swap yeah. here by accident because I'll melt. <laughs> yeah, you would melt. Um, okay. How do I get it on here without? Yeah. I know. Okay. Now, folks, I'm you know I'm on the laptop, so I'm mostly I'm mostly seeing his hoodie. So he's working through it. I can see yeah. there. So so if you oh, okay, now I can right see here. it. <laughs> I've got like a cutting board. Yeah. 
and hope and hope and I just need to like keep it like. Is that cutting board not going to melt, Chris? Um, I probably should have worried about that more than I did. I didn't seem to melt though. Like it looked no. like it's, it's okay. It didn't no, get melted by the rack because like, I put the cutting board directly on the rack. It's a plastic cutting board. Right. But uh, no, it uh, it didn't melt. The pizza's out. I'm gonna let it cool a bit. Love it. There you go. And just just a report on the pizza there. I mean, the color is just right. You know, I'm looking at. I saw a, a nice brown crust on there. I thought there was kind of more of an orangey kind of cheese to the side there, and just a perfect. Yeah, am I looking at a cheese pizza there, Chris? Is that right? You you are. Yeah. I, I mean, I usually buy these cheese pizzas and then add something to it, mm-hmm. like. Um, like peppers or onions or tomatoes or whatever, and I just didn't have time. So today it's just a it's just a cheese pizza. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, cheese pizza is one of those pizzas that are like deceptively great. Yeah. You have a really great yeah. cheese pizza. Yeah. Um, like like you know maybe you want more than that, but like are you really going to complain about you know bread and cheese and tomato sauce? No. Like what more do you need? Exactly. That's right. I mean, as somebody who, you know, historically has always loved extra cheese on a pizza, which is good. And then you, you judge the pizza places. If you ask for the extra cheese and what you get, you're like, this is extra. What would if I got regular amount of cheese, would you give me like just like three strands of it? Come on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I think we've all had that experience. I yeah. mean, sometimes, sometimes Domino's will, I feel, give me a double amount of cheese. And other times I do think like, what the hell? You know, this is yeah. this is what a single amount of cheese should be. Yeah. Now I gotta ask before we get into Judgment Day proper here, Chris. Mm-hmm. What is your like local? If you're like, okay, I'm gonna get a good pizza from the neighborhood. What is the place you're going to in Toronto? Well, it wouldn't be from my own particular neighborhood. Yeah. But on the East End in Leslieville, Descendant Pizza. Mm-hmm. It's this Detroit-style oh. sort of deep dish pizza. It is such an experience that. It would be the first place that I would try to take anybody who is just visiting Toronto. So it's not right downtown. It's a, it's a little bit of a trek to get there, but it's just such a, an experience of pizza. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, and I'm, I'm I'm excited to hear that there's good representation of Detroit pizza in Toronto, a place that is you know relatively near Detroit, uh, all things considered, uh, you know, on a uh, continental scale, because, you know, in Halifax, not near Detroit. And especially knowing, like, I only found out what Detroit-style pizza was probably in the last two years. Is the Detroit-style so. pizza in Halifax? No, I mean, we just have regular red stuff. Okay. See, our pizza is very much, is um, largely the culture is from uh, Lebanese families who came here and largely run the pizza places here. Really? So there's, I think there's wow. even, I've heard people talk about Lebanese-style pizza, which might be a different thing of where the toppings sit on the pizza as a whole thing um but yeah it's is a very that, good thing that's that just really like what i mean i guess that is the distinction between pizzas from different places it's the it's the thickness of certain sections of the pizza and mm-hmm. the order in which the you know condiments are well the like ingredients are applied yeah exactly and it's like this is more and th- these are almost these are always in pizza ovens as opposed to something kind of a more of a brick oven kind of thing i was i've been okay. to new york and have more of a brick oven pizza a little bit different right. there more of an italian kind of connection um, but yeah, I mean, if I was, uh, I, I would, I, if I was going on the pure nostalgia play for me, I would take you to, uh, Basha's pizza in Cole Harbor, which, uh, really? you know, I, Cole Harbor listeners will, will know what that is, of course. Uh, but I think, I mean, also I have to shout out a Napoli pizza in Cole Harbor, which is, has become the Vaughn family, uh, staple favorite there. So, um, good guys, the, the Napoli guys, they're, uh, they always good to razz you about the football team that you like losing. So, uh, 
good people there. So yeah, that has been the pizza corner on the Smackdown. <laughs> there should always be a pizza corner. That's great. Well, the good thing, That's and we actually ironic because like most pizzas don't have corners. Most pizzas don't have corners. Detroit style pizzas do. Do. And there is a location in my city called Pizza Corner. So that is also a uh, very major consideration. Uh, but yes, and this is good, too, because we did not get into the actual Judgment Day itself, which I think is great. And But now we will, because we start with some little girls who are saying uh, that rhyming prayer, you know, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And this was used uh, even for Judgment Day 2000. So this 2003. We're still using this kind of this motif, these clips of these girls. I, I recall them being a, a major part of when The Undertaker came back from his injury. And so they're still using it there. And we're also seeing visuals uh, of an empty church with a noose in it, which is a pretty dark um, thing to see. Uh, and we also see clips of the Triple H Kevin Nash feud, the Brock and Big Show feud, the Mr. America versus Mr. McMahon feud. Uh, kind of confusing because Vince is not wrestling. Uh, Mr. America, Roddy Piper is. And the last image we see, if I'm not mistaken, because I saw this and was a little bit surprised, the last image appears to be someone hanging from a noose that we see from below. So we're below this person hanging from a noose. Very dark image. And uh, the voiceover says, may God have mercy on their souls. And then it goes into the, and now, Raw and SmackDown present WWE Judgment Day. And the, the pyro goes off, and we are live in Charlotte, and we see the pay-per-view entrance set. Chris, did you have any thoughts on this set? <laughs> well, it, it looks incomplete because it's, yeah, just good, good description. Bunch, it's just a bunch of scaffolding. So I'm Over some brick. There's like brick and there's also fire, but it's okay. mostly scaffolding. So it's mostly scaffolding and it's not actual brick. It's It's just cardboard with like a brick sort of design, design. Yeah. on it. It's it's incredibly chintzy. Like, if you wanted to see a picture of them setting up this backdrop, that would be it because it is the scaffolding. So, yeah. so it would be indistinguishable from the finished product. Uh, yeah, if this is what Judgment Day looks like, like even if things take a bad turn for me. Right. And and I'm about to get like a very negative judgment. Um, I would be upset if like it was this chintzy, like right. scaffolding cardboard, a guy who sounds like he like narrates the tour of like haunted houses, like that kind of that kind of stuff, you know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it, this is a time where people are very nostalgic for these sets. And the thing to remember, I think, largely is like every like two or three sets like that, like that they would have were just like these kind of not that impressive, just things. It's either a lot of scat, like they often do a lot of scaffolding thing, or they do like, yeah, it's a big screen, and you're like, mm -hmm. what else is there to it? You're kind of like, well, there's a little bit of something. And now, I mean, now, I mean, if you want to get mad about it being a big screen, it's truly just a really big screen, largely. Even though there's, you know, they go big for WrestleMania, they go. Um, very small for when they do the baseball stadium, uh, Royal Rumbles, things like that. So, uh, yeah, when we're describing the show tonight, if you haven't seen it, just imagine it against a very generic 2003 wrestling backdrop because that's more or less what it is. And so Taz, Taz deems that tonight will be a rocket buster using uh, one of his favorite Tazisms. And uh, we begin not with the match, but with glass shattering as Stone Cold Steve Austin walks down to the ring. And he is the current co-general manager of Raw with Eric Bischoff. 
and it's it's weird for him to start with something other than a match, but that's what we get. And essentially, it's just his way for him to come in and say, hey, it's going to be a great show tonight. And he says, I'm going to be watching the show uh, from a suite here in the arena. And uh, I have said on the I believe on this podcast before that I think you know, they have the general managers who are, you know, Stephanie has her office and everything like that. But I think they should be in a suite. We should see them. They should be watching the show from there. They should be um, you know, issuing edicts and things like that. So uh, Steve Austin uh, finally does something I've always wanted him to do. And so on his way up there, he grabs some beers. He gives a beer to Taz. He like smacks it and Taz drinks it. And that becomes a running joke for especially early on the show. That Taz is like kind of faking to be drunk. Not not like actually faking, but he's kind of like, oh, man, it was that beer I had. <laughs> um, and so they so Austin does that. He, he, he gives it to Taz and then he walks through the crowd into his box. And it's funny because when he gets there, Jerry Lawler, our, our raw commentator who's uh, starting off the show with us, he says that Austin's going to be in the cheap seats. Which I know what he's getting at, but that is a major misrepresentation of what a skybox is or what like a suite is, because those are not cheap seats. Those are the opposite of cheap seats. Those are like the nicest ones. Yeah, yeah. He could, you know, there was a lady who he could ask for like snacks. Yeah, exactly. And she will, fe- and she will be a prominent feature uh, throughout the night. Um, yeah, I think I've only ever seen one thing in a in a in a suite at a, in an arena. Have you, Chris, seen anything in a suite in an arena? any connections like that uh a tennis stadium i've been oh, yeah, in a nice. suite in a tennis stadium there we go uh, but it's probably a little bit different than like one of these larger stadiums right right yeah i mean it's all, all the, the, the kind of the major sports is all about like, they're very expensive and it is it is the uh they have servers and things like that i mean it just seems, seems a great way to do it but uh not not something i would be super used to used to so yeah we will see more of steve austin in his suite as we go on in the first match of the night, the actual match proper here, we start off with a SmackDown match, which is great because we have John Cena and the FBI uh, versus Rhino, Chris Benoit and Spanky. Now, I will say when I say John Cena, and the FBI, that's actually four guys, but Nunzio is not wrestling. I don't know why, but he's just not. Strange choice. But yes, Rhino, Chris Benoit and Spanky are the other one there, which is the, the face team. And so John Cena comes down and he raps. I say raps in quotes because there's no, there's not even a beat. He's just doing slam poetry. I think I've said this before in past episodes, but he's just doing slam poetry. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's slightly less cool. Yeah, no kidding. Know, in, it's like in 2003, slam poetry. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't like you were, you know, six, seven, eight is when that start slam poetry gets big. I don't think it was ever cool per se. Uh, I once had a. Uh, a uh, college roommate who encouraged because I, I I was pretty good at like faking the cadences of uh, slam poetry. He's like, you should totally just do that. And uh, every day I remember that I, I am thankful that I didn't do that for my own sake, that I wasn't like, yeah, I could do slam poetry. <laughs> like, I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, why? I mean, you could be right now a world famous slam poet. I mean, right there. That's the reason is that I wouldn't want to be that. That's that seems like but if you were that problem. maybe you would really really want to be that maybe i mean that's it's a great it's a great point that's right um i could be i could just try some slam poetry now where it's like mm-hmm. john cena doesn't rap don't know why anyway there you go it doesn't have to rhyme right poetry doesn't have to rhyme it's a whole thing um i also have to i also think about um <laughs> Mike Myers. Well, not sure about that. I mean, Mike Myers in his early role in So I Married an Axe Murderer, where he seemingly is a professional poet, and they show him on stage doing poetry things, and it's uh, pretty breathtaking just how 
how that whole world is set up for him and how he would be able to make a career of that. Hard to imagine. Uh, but we have John Cena here, and he is not rapping, but doing slam poetry, like we said. And he's talking about the FBI, who is part of their crew tonight. He makes a bunch of uh, mafia movie references, and it's just like, eh, okay, that's fine. We move on. And uh, we see a clip from the SmackDown before the pay-per-view here when the FBI ran in, and uh, they did what I described as an NWO DQ during the Benoit Cena match that this up, which is when a faction just runs in and ends a match, and that's a disqualification. We just, and there's a big fight. We move on. Because the NWO would do that every Nitro, twice a Nitro, three times a Nitro, for years. This is what they did. And later on, you'd have Sting come down and beat them up at one point. And that would be the exciting thing. It's like, okay, they're going to have a beatdown, but at one point, Sting's going to have a bat. He's going to hit Buff Bagwell in his stupid ribs and go from there. So, anyway. So, it's it's nice because I, I will say, when the face team comes out, Rhino comes out, and he stands, uh, I think they kind of stand like halfway between the entrance and, and the ring. Then Spanky comes out, and then they, he, he waits there too. And then when Benoit comes out and meets up with them there, the three of them run into the ring, which is funny because that's what Spanky does. And so it's felt like a nice little like team unity thing, and I liked that they were doing the fun thing that the scrappy little face guy does. And so I thought that was cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciated that. And uh, so the match starts off here with uh, Spanky launches himself over Benoit and Rhino onto the FBI and Cena outside the ring. And uh, essentially, you know, we start off here and Spanky's just getting worked over by the bad guys to start the match. You know, he gets a leg scissors on, on, on Palumbo, which sends him into his teammates. And Spanky gets a tag to Benoit, uh, who runs wild with Germans on multiple guys, hitting suplexes, hits a headbutt on Palumbo. And then Nunzio runs in, uh, but Rhino spears him before he can cause too much trouble. And then uh, Spanky tags back in uh, with a blind tag on Benoit, which is dumb because he just tagged out. And then he goes for slice bread number two, his finisher there, but Palumbo catches him. And he sets up the kiss of death, which is kind of like um, Demolition's decapitation finisher, where you, you, uh, you know, de- Demolition, they put you in a backbreaker position, and then uh, they would, um, I think they would elbow drop you from that position there. Only That's now, right. the kiss of death is a leg drop in the same position. Um, I appreciate them going back to the well with old tag moves to make it a little bit different. And just like that, after Spanky makes his bad choice, um, it gets the one, two, three. And I was shocked by the length of this, Chris. I thought this would be way longer. Um, you know, I didn't find any of it exceptional. I don't find FBI very interesting. No. So I did not want this to be any longer than it was. <laughs> that is that is fair. Uh, I would, I guess, yeah. I mean, it is hard to argue against the FBI being not that great a team. I was surprised that I don't think Rhino ever tagged in. I think that is like, if oh, you're going to put together, I don't think so. I think it was just Spanky oh. gets beat up, Benoit, Spanky tags back in, and he gets killed. He did stuff, but he was never a legal man. Right. Huh. Which I guess is possible. I mean, like, with wrestling, and maybe this is me thinking too narrowly, I'm always thinking like, I think that every guy, every person in a multi-man tag match should tag in at some point. Uh, Unless they're injured. Yeah, sure. Unless they're legit injured and you got to conceal it somehow. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, too, you know, in regular in real life, you'll have whole games where people don't play the whole time, and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just how it goes. So, yeah, that was, I think it was three minutes, 55 seconds, if I'm not mistaken. So, I was a bit surprised by that. And we also see after the match that Spanky, he's kind of woozy. He's got kind of like a, a blood coming from his eye. So, somebody at some point oh. was a little bit rough on him. Gosh. Yeah. I'm not sure who. And then so we head up to the we head up to the suite where Steve Austin is. He's talking to a waitress in his suite. 
And uh, he seems like he's having a good time there. And then Eric Bischoff shows up. And uh, he's like, you know, I'm 50% co-general manager on Raw with you. It's 50-50. And so half of everything this week is mine. And it's like, okay. Um, and Austin – and it's funny, like uh, Bischoff is like unimpressed by all the beer because Austin, it's Austin's there. So it just has like tons and tons of beer there. And uh, he's essentially saying, suggesting he's like a classier guy than that. And I was like, I guess that's part of his character. It's kind of hard to tell. Like this whole – these all this is a recurring segment. And it's hard to get a sense totally of what we're supposed to think uh, Bischoff is because, like, he's a wrestling guy. He's from Minnesota, but he likes like, the finer things in life. And you're like, I guess. But he also wears, like, a leather jacket. Like, he doesn't – his appearance doesn't screen the finer things in life. It's something like you would have, like, a William Regal do where you're kind of like, well, I never. We we are dignified. And so it's, it's weird to see Bischoff do this. Well, I think it's kind of like, say, say you live in Texas, how you imagine these douchebags are. Who live in L.A. Right. It's the coastal that, elite kind of crowd, eh? Yeah. yeah. That, like, um, he's not an uncool guy, but he's just douchey. And, like, those douchey people will drink beer in a douchey way. Right. Or, yeah, or, or be uh, kind of hipsterish about him. Like, this is what you're drinking. Can't believe it. Uh, yeah. And so Austin, you know, he, he bristles against that. And so he gives mm-hmm. Bischoff a beer. Mm-hmm. They cheers. Uh, Austin is never that careful with his chairs, and so a lot of Bischoff's beer ends up spilled on his jacket on the glass of the suite. And this is going to factor in later, because there's glass covering the front of the suite, which is probably typical in a lot of the places. And you can push it away so you can get into the, you can see the crowd and everything like that. And so there's uh, beer on the glass of the suite as well. And uh, we go from there. We see that there's some members of the Carolina Panthers in the front row. So I'm not too up on the. Uh, 2003 roster for the Carolina Panthers. Although at this point, this is May 2003, so probably was like the one to the just the 2002 season. I don't know if they free agents in there, but there they go. They're they're in their offseason time right now, so taking in some Judgment Day. And what they're about to take in is a match that involves Chris's favorite tag team, because we've got Tess and Scott Steiner, but more importantly, we have La Resistance, Sylvain Grenier, and Rene Dupree uh, of Le Nouvelle Mondial, uh, a favorite of <laughs> Chris Ivetrenko. It's uh, just their new show was just so funny. Um, yeah, I, I didn't see this match, so I will be learning for the first time what happens in it. I do very much hope that they win. Well, I've got some great news for you. I'll tell you about it there. Uh, now, you will probably believe me if I tell you that JR completely mangled the name La Resistance. Uh, <laughs> I, like, yes, that, that is very believable. Yeah, just just simply putting regular French pronunciations in front of JR is going to lead to something, at least to some humor, at least. And uh, so to build to this match, we saw that in the last few weeks at one point, Scott Steiner had like a debate with one of these guys, like with podiums and stuff in the crowd. And he took issue with how these guys didn't support the troops, uh, which is kind of the most like plain reading of this drama here where you're like, the whole thing is that they're French. French did not support the U.S. when they went to war in Iraq. Uh, But instead of like playing with the kind of larger cultural things of that. They just kind of stated it outright, like, you don't support the troops. And they're like, no, we do not. And it's like, <laughs> ah, I'm mad at you. <laughs> like, okay, this is very elementary school. This kind of very obvious feud set up. Although the debate I mean, thing is not coming to wrestling, I will say. I mean, like, they could have decided to um, set up some kind of feud that would be like a metaphor for this. Right. But... Mm. Why go into a metaphor? Why not just make it what it is? Which is, um, this is our opinion of the people who don't support troops. 
this is this is what we think about French people. Like like no metaphor. We're just going to like set this right up for you. Imagine though, imagine if Tess and Scott Steiner, because the funny thing here too is I think Scott Steiner is supposed to be a face. I think Tess is a heel. We'll see that more of what, that too, but it's kind of a weird face heel dynamic. But imagine if Tess and Scott Steiner are both bad guys and they're like scheming, they're going to interrupt a match later on. And they went over to Levy's Stance in the back and they're like, hey guys, what's going on? They're like, not in the match. And you're like, great. Uh, we're going to interrupt a match later on. We're going to get in there. We're going to break it up. We want you to come with us. You're going to come with us. And they're like, we won't. Why we interrupt a match we don't have anything to do with? That would be completely inappropriate for us. We have no reason to do that. And they're like, come on. We're telling you to do it. And they say, no. Like, uh, I'm mad at you guys now. See, that would be the subtle way to do it. Because you're telling the story, but with the different actors in place. Do you get what I'm, get- you get what I'm getting at here, Chris? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's no Saddam character we can make to make this work, but... Uh, no, I think, I think no, you know, I mean, there's a way yeah, could that, that, I mean, they've already sort of done the Iraqi characters. That's probably it's the true. only reason why they introduced them now. I do wonder if there was ever a call made to Iron Sheik. <laughs> Get him back. You know, Let's do this again. We could use you just for uh, Judgment Day. Um, yeah. When was the last time he was on WWE? I believe it would be at the gimmick battle royal at WrestleMania 17 in early 2001, so just two years uh, earlier. But I could be wrong. He could have showed up uh, in, in, in the intervening years since then. But uh, he wasn't overly mobile then either, so mm-hmm. that's the whole thing. That's true. Yeah. Larissa Stiles, when we see them, they're wearing berets, and their outfits, they appear to be based on like of 19th course. century French sailor outfits. They have black. <laughs> it's, what they, it's what the average American thinks that the average French person is wearing. It's honestly uh, surprising that they I'm, don't come down to the ring with berets and like on a on a, two, a bicycle built for two. It's surprising. <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah. yeah, that's how I perceived most French people. Absolutely. Uh, and so this, so we'll skip to the end here. And so Scott Steiner gets gets uh, tags in Tess. He gets the hot tag. So Tess runs wild and things break down. And Tess gets a pump handle slam on Sylvain Grenier. He covers him. But the referee is still in the corner telling Scott to get back in his corner. So there's no count. And so Tess is mad about Scott Steiner being not – his teammate is not in the right position. Um, Test uh, then gets draw kicked into Stacy, who's on the apron. Because Stacy Keebler is uh, Test's girlfriend at the time uh, and, and kind of a marketing manager sort of thing. And uh, so she gets knocked off the apron with his drop kick, and she falls and is caught by Scott Steiner. And so Tess doesn't like that because she's his girlfriend. Uh, I mean, on some level, it's like, dude, do you want her to fall down and just not get caught? Like, period. Uh, but he's just like one of these guys, who, this wrestling character of guys who get instantly jealous and incensed if anyone does anything, even just to protect or save your girlfriend, uh, which does not sound like love to me, if I can say that. And it's like uh, the Randy Savage level jealousy. Yes, they're they're trying very hard to just evoke that exact that exact connection there with with Macho and with Miss Elizabeth. And so Tess doesn't like the, the, the catching, and uh, he gets rolled up, but he kicks out. And I was ready for the roll to be the finish because I was like, oh, okay. It's, it's not going to be – it just seemed like an opportunity to give Tess a, a loss and be mad about it. But instead, Scott Steiner tags in. He hits some suplexes, but the Tess hits him by accident. And the Lurie Stalls gets their finisher, Le Bon Soir, which is a double flapjack, and they pin Steiner, one, two, three. And so after Hooray! that – yeah, and so they get their win. Yeah, exactly, Chris. Here's your, this is your chance. They say, don't be afraid, and you're, you shouldn't be afraid, and so it's a big win for them. And uh, after the match, uh, Stacy Keebler checks on Scott Steiner, but Tess takes exception to this. 
and he drags Stacy away. And so it's strange because Scott Steiner and Tester you know, ostensibly tag team, but Tester doesn't even want Stacy to check on him. Not like help him up, not do anything like that. She doesn't even want he doesn't even want her to be like check if he's okay. He's just like, no, forget it, let's get the hell out of here. It's like, all right, like that's kind of taking it to the extreme, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And then we go backstage and we see Mr. America and he walks past Gregory Helms. And, you know, you may as you know, you're we're, that's a guy from from Raw, kind of uh, in the sense that Gregory Helms is a, a reporter for the Daily Globe. Uh, now, I will say that Gregory Helms bears very strong resemblance to the hurricane who would have seen on heat. And so Gregory Helms, reporter for the Daily Globe, he asks Hogan. Uh, sorry, he asks if Hogan is underneath Mr. America's mask. And if so, what is what? Uh, what is up with that? As uh, <laughs> as he is wants to say, and he says it in the way he says it, which I'm not going to say. But says, what's up? With someone that? finally decided to just ask. Yeah, it's, it's good. But Mr. America, he takes exception to that because uh, he suggests that uh, you know, hey, maybe there's a superhero under your Helms' suit there. Mm. And so they essentially both agree to let it go, and they wish each other luck. So someone had the great idea, and honestly, it's not a bad idea to be like, let's go the two guys, the two mask guys who have kind of. Uh, their gimmicks are that they're not that disguised, and let's have them confront each other backstage. It's like I think that I think that works well enough. Absolutely. Elsewhere backstage, Josh Matthews is interviewing Eddie Guerrero, and uh, he says that Team Angle said that Eddie could do uh, either the ladder match tonight as a handicap match, or he could just forfeit the match. And I don't know why those are the options because Eddie is not defending the championship; he's challenging for it. Uh, mm-hmm. So in theory, he could also do what he does, which is find another partner. And, right. I'm not sure why. I just presume that at some point on Sunday Night Heat, Team Angle came on and they were like, I get it. You can either fist by yourself or just forfeit. And it's like, those aren't the choices, guys. That's not how that works. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, so Eddie gets another partner, and his partner is Tajiri, who he says is a little bit crazy. And uh, I see that Eddie has Chavito written on his wrist tape there, so trying to uh, evoke some sympathy there for Chavo. And uh, Eddie gives Tajiri one of Kurt Angle's gold medals, which Eddie and Chavo stole a couple weeks ago. And then the jury does a pretty funny delivery of saying we lie, we cheat, we steal essay. Uh, and it's funny. He's got some fun, fun energy here, I think. I like and that. That's typical. He was saying that he learned this from Eddie Guerrero hmm. and it, it foreshadows what happens later. That's true. It's it's some positive foreshadowing here. Now, the question I'll ask you, Chris, is there anybody here that they could have had do this other than to jury? Because uh, I'm like, you know what? Like Benoit barely wrestled earlier. He's teamed with uh, Eddie Guerrero before. Maybe there's something more there. I wouldn't mind if that happened. Um, you know, what do you think of that? Do you think there maybe be something better, better than Jajiri on the roster for this? Well, no. I mean, just from watching SmackDown, I didn't know who was on the actual full roster, but they're much smaller rosters than we're used to today. So, mm-hmm. other than like Rikishi, and <laughs> I didn't want, I didn't want that. You didn't no. want that. Um, nah, there's probably not that many other heels that they could have part paired him with. Yeah, no, it's true. There's not, there's not a lot there. Um, or faces rather. Faces. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's there at this point. They did, they did switch over. Um, although there are some great to jury moments during this ladder match too. So, uh, and this we're going to okay. talk about, we're talking about right now, team angle versus Eddie Guerrero to jury, a ladder match for the WWE tag team titles would have been with Chavo. It would have been Los Guerreros. Chavo uh, was injured either before SmackDown or on the house show circuit. It's not totally clear in retrospect where it was, but Chavo is out of the picture, which is why we have the jury going up uh, to challenge for Team Angle's tag team titles. And 
when uh, Eddie and Tajiri are on their way to the ring, Sheldon goes after Eddie in the aisle and he throws him into a ladder. And so the, thing, the match gets started in earnest right away. And uh, the, the team angle double teams Tajiri. And when Eddie gets in the ring, team angle does a military press onto a knee combo, which is always good. And then team angle goes for a ladder and Eddie launches Tajiri outside, but he doesn't quite get enough distance for the ropes. And Tajiri ends up falling pretty dangerously from the, to the floor. And uh, I could tell by the way that they uh, edited this, that they had used an alternate angle that doesn't look as bad, but the fact that they it doesn't look good anyway. So yeah, no, it looks is, yeah, quite dangerous. But thankfully, it seemed he's, he was okay. He seemed fine in the end, which is good. Uh, and uh, Eddie followed him up uh, over the ropes to the outside, but he got thrown down by Shelton. So I assume that was supposed to happen, although it did have the vibe where it could have been like, okay, that didn't work. Well, maybe I'll go out instead and <laughs> see if I can make that work. I was like, okay. And uh, so back in the ring, Team Angle grabs – they climb a ladder, both of them, and they're on, both on either side of the ladder. And Tajiri gets a handspring elbow, and he runs through, and he handsprings, and he elbows the ladder down with both his elbows. And the ladder gets knocked down, and Team Angle falls. And when I saw that, I was just like, hmm, I feel like tag team ladder te- – sorry, tag team ladder match strategy is pretty straightforward where one person should climb – and the person should just knock other people down. They should just play defense. One person on offense, one person on defense. And as long, in theory, as long as you just have one guy uh, who you kind of like take one of them out of the equation and then like fight one guy back and forth, you can actually probably end a lot of tag team ladder match fairly easily, I think. Because uh, both climbing at the same time is pretty pointless. You're just essentially setting yourselves up for uh, an easier takedown. I mean, I mean, you're setting yourself up for drama, most importantly. Yeah. Uh, one thing that is different now, usually tag team battle royals, sorry, usually tag team ladder matches, you'll have two ladders, whereas here we've just got everybody trying to climb on this little one. Yeah, it's true. They, they, yeah, the the proliferation of ladders was an interesting thing, and I don't know if that was a, uh, if it came from the, like on the 90s ladder matches sort of thing, or if it was the... Uh, with with the TLC matches they got into where they would have small ladders and then really big ladders and those really big ladders became kind of the, almost the default in some ways as opposed to the more um, yeah I don't know I don't know if these are these are eight feet or ten foot ladders the ones they have in the ring but uh, they are yeah they're kind of the smaller versions of it so it's it's, it's interesting um, so yeah so Jerry and Eddie they double kick a double drop kick a ladder into the groin of Charlie Haas which gets a big reaction from the crowd it's always just fun because they sit up in the corner there. And then Eddie gets a heel onto Charlie Haas, who is wedged between two ladders. So he's like, he's on a ladder, a ladder's on top of him. And so Eddie gets his flipping heel sent on on that, which is very good. And probably not fun for either of them to get. Although probably worse for Eddie in some ways, because he's just jumping and landing on his back on a ladder. Which would not be fun. And uh, does even have a nice moment here? one where she, of yeah. many bumps that he takes throughout the match. Like in terms of oh, yeah. who, who really did the hard work, that was Eddie. Yeah, he really does. And he's he's kind of the most natural one there. He's been in ladder matches before. that They even uh, talk about it here. They talk about how he wrestled against Rob Van Dam earlier in 2002. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's just, like, he's just a really good talent for something like this. Uh, and Shelton, Shelton climbs the ladder here, and then Eddie drop kicks him off the side. He gets some really nice height, and it just looked really good. Because it just – I love the, – the nice thing about ladder matches, you can have the visuals of – somebody kind of flying in and taking somebody out. It's really, it's, it's like as close to aerial combat as you can actually guess, uh, get rather, uh, in a time where, uh, you know, you, it's not like WCW cruiserweight stuff, like in 1996, where like the guys would be like doing springboards and all that stuff all the time. It's like, it's, this is very good airborne action. And so Shelton, uh, 
reverses a whip into the corner, and he gets an exploder suplex and power slam onto Eddie. Uh, sorry, on Eddie onto a ladder in the corner. So more of Eddie taking a big hit there. And then Team Angle sets up their leapfrog sets onto the back, uh, which is something they usually do. Only this time, um, the guy, Tajiri, is laid out on a ladder, and Shelton Benjamin is jumping from a ladder. So he's like at more height, and he, Shelton, uh, sorry, Tajiri is already on a worse surface. And so they hit that. It's a nice big reaction from the crowd. They're very impressed with it and very excited. And they decide to have Charlie climb the ladder to go for the belts. But then Eddie pushed the ladder over and Haas tumbles off the ladder and out of the ring, which looks good. Uh, Sometimes they have those uh, uh, different spots like that where a guy will – he'll go off the ladder. And and before he hits the ground, he'll like bounce off the ropes and kind of roll over it and that sort of thing. And uh, one of the craziest ones I've ever seen – I don't remember which one it was. But Christian took one in one of the TLC matches of the triangle ladder match where – uh, he falls out of the ring and he doesn't make contact with the with anything on the way down. He just falls from the ladder and kind of like and it's pretty dramatic looking. I wish I could get a better angle of it. Um, I think it might be the triangle ladder match at WrestleMania uh, in 2000. It's not technically a TLC match, but uh, it was an awesome match. I think that's it. But there might be another one there. I mean, if you're ever bored and you haven't watched uh, TLC one triangle ladder match at WrestleMania 20. Um, uh, 2000, also known as WrestleMania 16. Like, just check those out and um, have yourself a good time because those are like unparalleled good. Absolutely. I mean, I have few memories from like actually at the time watching matches and what I felt when I watched them. But certainly the first TLC match, like I actually have a memory of watching it and like what I felt at the time. Oh yeah, there, there's just there's very little like them, right? There there's there are hardcore matches, there are ladder matches, there are tag team matches, but to throw everything all together in one and the way they put those matches together is just they're crazy, they're lovely. I gotta go back and see TLC one, that first one there. I know that um, that was I think SummerSlam 2000 was one that was officially one that was called TLC, um, so that was a good one. Uh, so yeah, then Tajiri uh, after Charlie got uh, knocked out off the ladder out of the ring, Tajiri gets some kicks. And tarantula when Charlie Haas gets back in, and uh, it seems like a good move to use the ladder match because you're just you're holding a guy back so he can't interrupt. Um, now that said, Shelton Benjamin comes by and hits Tajiri with a ladder when he's exposed and upside down on the ropes. So maybe it didn't, didn't work out great for Tajiri in that moment. Although I do like it as a spot period. Uh, and uh, so Eddie back in the ring, he gets a monkey flip on Shelton Benjamin who who flips so much that he actually flips into Charlie Haas who's holding a ladder in the ring, walking towards him. They both get taken out. And it's funny because there's throughout this, especially this part of the match here, uh, Michael Cole and Taz are talking about how Team Angle, they feel kind of unnatural in a match like this. They're such ring technicians. Um, and it's funny because, like, you don't actually have to use the ladder for moves to take people out in a ladder match. You could just wrestle them in a regular way, beat them down, and then when they're weak, just climb a ladder. Like, there's, you don't have to approach it from the, oh, I got to use the ladder and, and do all sorts of creative things. You just don't have to do that. Nah, you, you, you do. Sure you do. I mean, dramatically, maybe, but I mean, like, if you just treated it like a regular exercise, you don't, there's nothing that says these guys have to use this in order to do well in the match. That's just how they're approaching it. They, 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 they can tell the story of like, oh, they're, they're taking a different strategy where they want to kind of embrace this when it's not their natural strength, which I think is kind of a more subtle way to talk about what they're trying no, to do. It's such an impressive weapon. It'd be like a gun match. And you're deciding to <laughs> just, you're just going to like try to, you know, out wrestle them. 
No, right. you got to use the gun. You got to use the gun. <laughs> that's that's fair. And you know what they do? But I, I would even argue that they don't. They're not that unnatural because they even set up a move they always do. Only they used a very ladderified version of it, where the jury was on the ladder. They did this, this senton thing and it was uh, right. already there. So anyway, there's different there's different ta- tactics here. They could do, and the cooler towers are either wrong about it being something you don't have to do, or just that they're already doing well with it. You know. Anyway. So Eddie climbs the ladder here, and Team Angle attacks from both sides, and uh, Eddie knocks them down, and then he gets a frog splash on Shelton Benjamin from the second row from the top, and it looked quite good. And then Eddie and Charlie Haas climb. Eddie gets a sunset flip, flip powerbomb over the ladder onto Charlie, which looks great. That's always an incredible spot, the sunset flip on the la- uh, off the ladder. Yeah. Super duper good. Uh, I think the first time I saw that was Summer Sims 2001, I think, with uh, Jeff Hardy and Rob Van Dam. And then I know that uh, I think, I'm pretty sure that they used it again in the Rob Van Dam, um, uh, Eddie Guerrero ladder match they talked about earlier. So I think that's in there too. But uh, Eddie Eddie is kind of taking that spot on for himself. And so after that, Eddie climbs the ladder himself, and uh, Shelton Benjamin uh, goes to grab him. And uh, as he's trying to grab him, Tajiri is climbing up the other side, and Tajiri hits Shelton Benjamin with the green mist through the ladder. So he is on the other side, but ladders of course are uh, permeable. And so Tajiri hits him with the green mist through the ladder. It's a great spot. Shelton, I can't see. Uh, effectively, you know, Charlie Haas just got his, his his body rocked with that sense of the flip powerbomb. Shelton Benjamin has mist in his face. And Eddie and Tajiri grab the belts together on top of the ladder, and they are the new WWE Tag Team Champions. It's a fun ending. I really like that. Nice and original. It's a totally different uh, approach. I mean, we know Tajiri can use the mist sometimes to have that be the kind of deciding factor in there. Through the ladder especially it was a fun move. I could see Shelton being completely caught off guard by that and uh i really i really enjoyed it i thought everybody kind of made, made the most of their skills here what did you think yeah tajiri told us before the match that he was going to cheat and he did not that it's actually against the rules but right showing that he's willing to use unethical means to win a match and he followed through with that so i thought it was a nice piece of storytelling it was very creative because very, we've all yeah. seen so many ladder matches and yet there were all of these spots that were new and original. Like, I don't think I had seen them quite done this way um, since then. Yeah. I mean, even to Jerry doing the handspring elbow uh, into the ladders there, he's taking right. his moves that he uses mm-hmm. and kind of ladderifying that. I think that's an important thing. If I was going to be, if I was tasked with producing a ladder match to, uh, tomorrow, that would be what I would say to the guys. I'd be like, look, do the things you do with the ladder as much as possible because that shows that makes sense for your characters that you would be doing what you're comfortable with, but also using this weapon as you do it, which is good. And, and Eddie Guerrero just totally fearless. Uh, like the number of the time, oh, yeah. the number of times he slammed against the ladder, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, really got to respect the effort of all these guys. Absolutely. And uh, Eddie Guerrero is now the first two-time WWE Tag Team Champion. Uh, you know, if you're treating these belts separately from the original tag team titles, uh, he's the first. He, he won with, with uh, Chavo at, I believe, Survivor Series 2002, lost at a team angle, and then won it back with a different partner. So Eddie is, stands alone as the first WWE tag team champion with a two-time signifier on there. And when did ta- team angle pick it up again? When did they get the – When, when they, they first won it, I think February. Okay, so they've had it for quite a while. They did, yeah, February to, to May there. Um, they probably should have lost to WrestleMania, but such is life. And so Austin and Bischoff are arguing in their suite. We see them again, and they're seemingly talking—they're seemingly talking about how they should talk to Eddie Guerrero, because as ba- uh, Austin said, he called that was a badass match. 
And I don't know, maybe I, I'm not understanding the Brantley in a particularly good way, but I, I feel like they shouldn't be allowed to uh, contact Eddie Guerrero anyway. Like they seem to be trying to like get him to jump to to Raw, but if Eddie is under contract with SmackDown, that would be considered tampering. That is a it's a big no no in professional sports, and what I presume the uh, you know the Wild West uh, area of of WWE. I suppose so. I mean, are they so they, they're never really generally doing that, eh? Like trying to lure a well, superstar the, to another roster. Early on in the show, they would like when we when I started covering it here, they would do that all the time. The luring of them was the whole thing, and they had people defecting and jumping back and forth, and it was like, okay, you can take that guy, but I'm gonna come up to your show and I'm gonna take this guy. And they did that for for a while, and they said, okay, you can't do that anymore. Uh, you can only trade people. And uh, famously, for this podcast at least, they, a big show was traded to SmackDown, although we've never found out who he's traded for. And uh, yeah. no one has since kind of disappeared on on Raw anyway. So uh, I guess you could assume that uh, somebody paid for him, which is a weird concept. But I mean, maybe the trade – maybe we'll see the trade happen soon. Yeah. It might, maybe it was a uh, – like uh, for, for items to be named later, right? There's a whole right. thing of like, well, maybe – yeah, if you get somebody good, we'll take him later on. It'll be like Liv Morgan next year. Yes. Yeah, they're just going to start – they're going to start paying that off now uh, in, 20, in 2022. Uh, and so the server comes by again as uh, as Austin and Bischoff were talking about how good a match that was. And this time she has a burger, and uh, Bischoff does a whole, like, oh, a burger. Do you even know what's in that? It's like, okay, now he's starting to get even more snooty. This is also strange. Like, I, I think that even transgresses the whole, like, by ghost to elite things. It's like, because people like burgers, surely. Like, it's not like – it's not like a hot dog. Hot dog is your classic one. is like, oh, you know what they put in hot dogs. Ha, ha, ha. But burger less so. Like he's like, do you even know what's in that? It's like, yeah, beef. That's how burgers work. They're not. There's nothing really like mysterious. Yeah, there. but I mean, I suppose he eats a sort of a organic burger. Um, you know, that's probably what they do in L.A. It's it's like they he knows the name of the cow. The grass fed beef, but, arugula, things sure. like that. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, and then Austin it gives Bischoff grief for how he drinks a beer, which he says he t- he takes a sip uh, and he doesn't chug it like Austin does. And Austin says that makes Bischoff a sissy. And you know Steve Austin not exactly expanding the 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 arena of masculinity at the time. He was kind of narrowing it into his very kind of like you gotta be like Austin to be a real man kind of focus there. Uh, which in the years in the years since I think we've we've as a culture moved to a more broad view of masculinity. Period. That I think Austin is not really going for here. I mean, you might even call it toxic masculinity. I mean, like, I'm, like I'm going to point to my nose right now. <laughs> like, that is the real definition of toxic masculinity, is um, telling people that they need to chug their beer. Yeah, you do it right away, or else you're not a man. You're a sissy. You're a sissy, yeah. Sissy, yeah. Sissy being code for something, of course, also is part of that, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. And so we go backstage, and Terry is interviewing Chris Jericho, asking him about the uh, Intercontinental title battle role later on. And before anything really developed there, up walks Roddy Piper, and he has had a, kind of a weird pseudo-feud with Jericho. Uh, they are not on the same shows, but it went, I think at one point Jericho said something about Roddy Piper on, on Raw, and then on SmackDown, Piper said, oh, Jericho is talking about me on Raw. It's like, what's the connection here? And so Jericho calls he, – he calls Roddy Piper old here. Which is funny because Ronnie Piper is 49, and at the time of the recording here in 2021, Chris Jericho is 50, huh. and still wrestling. So Jericho is looking at Ronnie Piper making these jokes about yeah you should have a cane and everything like that, 
And uh, but Jericho is himself older than Roddy Piper was at this point. I mean, definitely more capable than Roddy Piper was at this point. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he was like, you know, two years ago, he was a world champion. He was in 48. And I think the idea that that in 2002, uh, Roddy Piper would be a world champion is completely absurd. Uh, Piper says, you know, hey, you know, you're making fun of my age, but, you know, Jericho, you ripped off Piper's pit. And Jericho was like, uh, he, he essentially says, like, what, like that leg that you ripped off that uh, amputee on SmackDown last week. And so it was strange. I mean, I don't like both these guys are also heels, so I don't get what the, the, the conflict is here. Per se, between them, in a way that makes sense. They're both, they should they should like have a problem with each other and they have a common ground, but it's something happen the same way. Um, and then that leads to the Intercontinental Title Battle Royal. Um, and uh, Jr. talks about it here. He he mentioned the title originated in 1979 when the when the organization was called the WWWF. I'm not mistaken, that's the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, which they've since shortened and then since changed. And we see a video package featuring glory shots of Intercontinental champions over the years. And a bunch of dramatic, kind of heelish moments. And they include such great Intercontinental Champions as Rikishi, Billy Gunn, Godfather, and Test. They also include good ones, but those are the ones that stuck out. I was like, I guess you're being more more holistic in your embrace of history of Rising Champions, as opposed to being like, look, the good ones are here. Yeah, that definitely wouldn't be the you know first ones I'd think of in terms of historically great Intercontinental Champions. I mean, they are around more or less. Like, there are people who are currently on the roster, largely, although some of them are irrelevant now, like Godfather uh, and Billy Gunn mm-hmm. in 2003, at least this point. It's kind of relevant. And so out comes Pat Patterson, and he has the Intercontinental title, and he was the first champion, so he's happy to come here. And uh, this is a Raw match. But one thing I will mention before I get to skip to the ending here is that uh, Chief Morley, who is Val Venus, and he was Eric Bischoff's chief of staff, he was kind of working a different gimmick there, he actually comes out as Val Venus again. So he's got like the whole uh, voice. He has a whole promo and it's a whole thing. I'm like, oh, Val Venus is back. This is crazy. Uh, Chief Morley got fired, but Val Venus is here. It's all very exciting. They're all very excited about that. And also in the match, uh, there's a bunch of guys. They all get they all get at their entrances. And they're, you all had to be a former Intercontinental Champion to get uh, entrance into this. So you had Chris Jericho, Gold Dust, Lance Storm, Rob Van Dam, Christian, Test, who's wrestling in his second match, Kane and Booker T. The one thing I will say here is that Booker T was never an Intercontinental Champion, and I don't know why they are giving it to him here. They are letting him in on something that he should not be part of because they said this is this is, if you won the Intercontinental title before. I presume I can only hope that on Raw they may maybe explain that away why he did that, but it does not make sense. I mean, why explain it? Why explain it? I mean, I don't know because because it sticks out to podcasters like me. And so we'll skip to the end of the Raw, this match here because it was on Raw. And, uh, the match, like, super quickly gets to a Final Four. It takes, like, two minutes, and all, all but four of the guys are just completely thrown out of the match. And it ends up being Christian, uh, Jericho, Goldust, and Booker T, which are actually two tag teams. Like, they wrestled they wrestled on pay-per-view recently in the last year. And uh, so Booker T goes for the spinner Rooney. He gets it, and, of course, when he gets up, Goldust, his own partner, tries to throw him out, but he just throws Goldust out instead. And then uh, Christian... Uh, Knocks Jericho uh, out of the ring after Jericho jumps in the second rope for a lion salt. So Jericho's gonna like finish off uh, finish off Booker T, but he gets dumped out. So it's like, oh, okay. And then and then a ref gets taken out because we have to have a whole dramatic ending here. And Booker T knocks Christian out, out out of the ring to the floor. And Booker T's music plays. Pat Patterson goes to hand Booker T the belt, 
But Christian takes out Pat Patterson, and he takes out Booker T in the ring too. And he gets back in the ring, and he slowly dumps Booker T out of the ring in full view of the referee, who's now come to, and now Christian is the Intercontinental Champion for Raw. So he's there's all the, all this chicanery. That's a good ending. Yeah, the only issue I take with it, the only issue I take of it is that we know the Raw general managers are watching up in the suites, and so they should be like, that's not fair. <laughs> like, they should immediately just be like, oh, well, we get to book Booker T a, a title match because uh, as far as we're concerned, uh, Christian cheated a little bit there. So well, that's the only thing. That... Doesn't he get a rematch at some point? Probably. Maybe. I don't know if you're the second yeah. last person in a, in a battle royal. I don't know if the, sure. the powers that BW would, would deem you available or, or that you deserve that. Uh, yeah, but I mean, ref says final. It's true. They say that all the time. And so now we get to the tawdry part of the evening. Uh, we start backstage. Sable in a robe walks with Tori Wilson. She's also in a robe, and they talk a little trash. And uh, Sable asks to borrow Tori Wilson's oil because they're going to have a, a bikini challenge here in just a few minutes. And uh, and there's this, this this drama between the two of them and Sable's uh, always being inappropriate to Tori Wilson, coming on to her in ways that are make her uncomfortable. And uh, so Sable, yeah, he a- she asked to Total borrow Tor- workplace sexual harassment. Absolutely. Textbook. Like just t- t- Tori, I want you to leave these these encounters, write down everything that happened and then take it to, to WWE's HR, which we'd love to talk about their HR department. <laughs> That's right. I'm sure they actually have one uh, formally, probably not for the rest yeah. of at least of the main office. They probably do. That'd be great. And so Sable, uh, Sable starts to use Tori's oil to oil up her legs and I can't help but when I see the legs in the oil to think of hot dogs. Like she just has the it's just the consistency oh, yeah. and color of like a nice uh, braised or boiled hot dog. That's what her legs look like. Well, that there was the whole legs or hot dogs photo meme thing. Right. Yeah. You know of this, right? I do. Yeah. It's, Sable would fit very well in that because I think she's, yeah, totally. she's just as much of a question mark. You just can't can't distinguish them. That's right. And so Cole and Taz show us the stats for Tori and Sable, and they show this on last week's SmackDown too. It has their measurements and then kind of their their uh, their their resume, their credentials. Uh, and they th- they uh, they throw to a uh, video Can we package. Talk about this, please. Yes. I mean, first of all, poor Sable, um, being the former women's champion, is actually number two in her yes. list of achievements. Uh, the first achievement was being a Playboy cover. Um, <laughs> Another of Sable's achievements was being on two TV guide covers. Matt, yes. not one, but two. Hey, at least at the time, that was a big deal. And uh, TV guide I mattered suppose. back then. I'm assuming TV TV guide doesn't exist anymore, does it? Uh, you know, if I had to guess, they're probably like a website. But the idea that they would have a printed TV guide seems like woefully out of date. Um, <laughs> right? Like they, they can't still be a, like a man. In a store. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Um, you know, they are. They have lots of uh, lot of very very big web presence there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what they would have here. Anyway, look, look it up, folks. I don't know if but, they could actually. It's a but regardless, odd. with these stats, um, bus size was listed as one of the stats. Mm-hmm. That really like tells you everything you need to know about, you know, WWE's attitude towards women. Right. At that time. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's just the, like the size of their breasts is kind of all that matters. So, yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. And so they they throw this video package and it's all Sable's weird come on Satori and it's over this really absurd saxophone music. Uh, just this really like cheesy kind of porny sounding saxophone. 
And uh, during one of the times where Sable says that Tori looks fat, the video has this weird widening effect to emphasize the fatness. I mean, it's just like it's so ridiculous. It was it was this is a great video package. Oh, yeah. It, uh, it runs the whole thing down. It's hard to it's hard to uh, miss it, really, uh, or to not get the point of it. And then so Taz is in the ring to host the challenge. And um, I totally forgot about this. Just to be clear, I watched the, uh, you know, we covered the uh, Halifax Smackdown a couple weeks ago on the podcast. The one, one that I was at with my brothers. I was glad, really glad, very glad, rather, to have all of them on, uh, all, all two of them. And uh, and so I remember watching this show because it was the, the follow-up to the Smackdown that we watched. Uh, but I don't remember the, I didn't remember that Tori had a special entrance. And the only thing I really describe it is a, like a live rendition of a Bond uh, movie opening. It's got like it's there is like this little uh, little section of, of of blankets or sheets and there's a silhouette and Tori's in there and there's which a like, singer in there like too. What they've done with Carmela, right? Um, Carmela kind of now does the sort of the dancing behind a sheet thing. But you say there's a singer. That's not just a singer. That's Jillian Garcia. Yeah, L- Lillian Garcia. Lillian, uh, sorry, and she's, Lillian. She's, she's doing a live rendition of the uh of of Troy wilson's theme song and i was like that's crazy who actually does that originally lillian garcia is the actual uh the, the proper singer of the whole thing uh, you don't realize how awful of a song it is until <laughs> you hear it performed live she does uh, i think she has a fine job of singing it but it's not good no it's, a, it's a horrible horrible song yeah. and like what's what's the chorus like what do you do when everybody, everybody. wants you? Yeah. Which, which I mean, I suppose it's a rhetorical question, but I mean, I don't think many of us would really know what to do when everybody wants us. Um, right. And it's not, in, in, in society, you know, we usually don't we, we treat that kind of famous and that we we aspire to. I know, obviously, that the, the 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 subtext of her song is supposedly, you know, kind of the whole um yeah you don't actually want to be famous like tori wilson and i and i don't but uh it is hard to be like empathetic for it in a way it really is yeah it really is I, one of the problems with the song so so yeah the live rendition by lillian garcia was i'm sure something no one in the wwe universe has been asking for but here we are yeah i mean it's it's kind of her version of a uh of a wrestlemania style big entrance uh for this bikini challenge I mean, I guess this is like um, one of the big things that Tori does in her modest career. But yeah. the how bad the song was, the entrance song for Tori, yeah. it really reminded me how great Siebel's theme song is. It's a leopard roar followed right. by a crack of a whip. Um, the all of the lyrics in the song are leopard roars, and I think it's magnificent. It's really good. I mean, I would even argue it's Sableicious in a lot of ways. And uh, <laughs> and yeah, Sable comes out next, just a regular theme song, nothing special there. And it's so funny because when they get in the ring, uh, I'm looking at the crowd, and the people in the crowd, the guys in the crowd. They're standing up and they have their cameras out. And you never see this during matches where guys have their cameras out to uh, document the goings on. But they are set on making sure they can see everything that's happening in that ring for this bikini challenge. And uh, before social media, like like what do they what do they need to get an image of that for? 
I mean, I mean, great question. What what would men do with uh, suggestive images of women they could save for later? It's, it's a mystery that no one no one really knows. Um, and so Sable goes first, and she has a very small bikini on. Don't really know how else to describe it uh, in a way that I'm comfortable or want to. Uh, and uh, Taz stands behind Tori. Uh, he's got his hand in his pocket. Maybe not the best place for it, I would argue, uh, in that setting, Taz. Maybe take your hands out of your pockets so we know where they are and what they're doing. And uh, Sable just kind of dances for a while in her outfit. People are very excited about that. And uh, they they do have some, do something that I actually genuinely laughed at is that they cut to Jerry Lawler at the Raw announce table because famously Jerry Lawler is so horny that uh, we know he must be shocked by this. And so they cut to him even though he's not for SmackDown and he's just doing his like, what? <laughs> Eyes popping out of his head. Yes. And yeah. they, I think they cut to him a couple times. He, all the times he's like, what? It's like, it's so like, I wonder if somebody's in his ear being like, okay, Jerry, three, two, one, you're going to be doing it again. And he's like, ugh. <laughs> and so Tori goes next after Sable. And she has a bikini with Playboy bunnies on it, kind of flouting uh, or flaunting her more recent uh, Playboy cover, uh, centerfold. And uh, I will say that it's not showing nearly as much as Sable's. So if you're going for raw, just kind of like flesh coverage, Sable's doing more. And so Sable seems to think the same thing. So as, as Tori poses and dances, Sable's scoffing on the ropes. And so when Taz tries to gauge their reactions, because he's just doing the crowd reaction thing, we go, who thinks Sable is honest? And we go, woo, clap, clap, clap. And who thinks Tori was honest? And they clap and everything like that. And uh, they, uh, they, 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 get, they get pretty much identical reactions, Tori and Sable. Well, and there were... Maybe more for I'm, Sable. There were a few boos mixed in there for Tori towards the end, I think. Right. I so mean, yeah. I, I think people were genuinely voting for Sable. Sable had the more confident choreography. True. Tori, she was kind of like improvising. But Sable like had clearly practiced this before. And was taking it very seriously. So as, as a viewer, I'm I'm always like, when these events come about, um, when they're asking who is the best at this, how are we supposed to evaluate it? Like, is it dancing ability? Is it appearance? Is it if they're a good person? Because typically faces always win these bikini contests. So it seems like being a good person is actually... Um, an important criteria when you're entering them. See, I always thought that they were just using the the Austin Powers scale of whether or not they make you horny, baby. Uh, and so that's the kind of that was what I always thought it was. I mean, maybe, but when when has a heel ever won a bikini contest? I mean, they came close tonight, but um, as Taz is trying to tally up the reactions here, Tori stops him, and she says she's not done yet. And Taz says, "Okay, continue." And so. Tori takes off her bikini and she reveals an even smaller glittery one underneath. And so it's it's even it's even more revealing than Sables. And Taz just declares Tori the winner. Uh, and she, you know, the crowd goes wild. And then Tori makes a point to give Sable a very porny kiss to end the segment just to get everyone feeling as worked up as possible. You know, as I mean, this is the definition of tawdry. Oh, and sure. As as much as it's it's all very kind of cheap and you know let's just put like um, some women in some very small bikinis and use that for cheers. I, I felt like how this was written and presented was actually very well done, including the kiss at the end. Like if you want something that's dramatic and impactful, this 
I mean, this has got to be around the time of the Madonna Britney Spears kiss, right? Wouldn't that be I a similar so, yeah. time period? Uh, I think this was like a lot better executed dramatically uh, because it was Tori turning the tables on Sable and using this kind of sexual manipulation against Sable. And you kind of see Sable in the end, just kind of like she was sort of resigned to her defeat. You looked at her and she was like, oh, my God, maybe I have a crush on her. Uh, so suddenly Tori had won. It, and so, yeah. like, really, I thought it was, you know, better done and maybe a little bit smarter than most people would give credit for. I, I thought it was great. It is true that Tori has a, a fairly unmistakable victory here, both uh, with the bikini itself and then by surprising Sable with her actions. So that's a, good, that's a good read on the situation there. You could look at it and just say it's Todd, you're also kind of like, well, I mean, if you're if you're following a storyline for it, it's, it's, it's pretty well done. Sure. So there you yeah. go. And so we cut immediately from the Bikini Challenge to Steve Austin and Eric Bischoff again in their suite. And they're gushing about the Bikini Challenge. And Austin says he needs a cigarette. And Bischoff just says <laughs> he has a condom in his wallet. Oh, what? And it's just Did weird. Did you say that? I, I miss. I didn't yep. watch this. He thing. says, oh, that's, that's I can do better. I got a condom in a wallet. What? I, yeah. I don't know what he's exactly suggesting he's going to do. Um, he is talking to Steve Austin. Uh, and it's just it's weird and funny to hear guys they're like these people who hate each other on a show be like, man, aren't we just so horny the two of us? And they're like sitting next to each other. It's just a very like it would be awkward yeah, for, for a couple of bros weird. to do it. It's awkward for people you don't like to do it. Yeah, they're united in their horniness at the time. Uh, and Austin, you know, his goal here he's trying to get Bischoff Bischoff to drink some more and eat some more. Uh, but you know, Bischoff he's pretty full of booze and food already. Uh, and Austin pranks him into eating, I thought it was pickles, but it might be uh, like jalapenos. And then uh, the juice that they come in, then he gets him to drink some more beer and he dumps beer on him. Sir. So so Austin is continuing to make the night difficult for Bishop by just pumping him full of booze and food. So it's like kind of like a combination between like your best friend at your bachelor party and your grandma. Yes, exactly. The, you, you look so skinny and also, bro, when are we ever going to have this opportunity again to see your permission and get as little as possible? Uh, no, it's true. I mean, I I tried and failed at my bachelor party to uh, to try to scam by uh, having some rums, some co just Cokes in between my rum and Cokes. Uh, but it didn't matter because I still threw up outside of a Denny's by the airport at the end of the night. So um, oh, perfect. I know. Mission, it's, mission accomplished. I, I can't say I'm not proud of it, honestly. It was <laughs> it, it was pretty much picture perfect as it went. Uh, beautiful experience. So that's yeah, a little bit a little bit of personal revelation here on the Smash Six podcast. Happy to share that with the crowd, with the people. And so we go from Austin and Bischoff trying to get as much food and drink inside of each other, uh, and being weirdly horny, uh, to Roddy Piper ranting backstage with Sean O'Hare. He's ranting about Chris Jericho. When O'Hare talks him down, he says, "You know, we got other stuff to do tonight." Then Vince McMahon walks in. And he gives Roddy Piper some confidence in his match against Mr. America. And uh, he even says, you know, he gets that Piper invented ruthless aggression, which is interesting and in trying to make him kind of relevant, especially in this time. But I feel like that's not really keeping with Piper's character throughout the years. Like he was not like ruthlessly aggressive. He was like he was a bad guy and he was sneaky and smarmy and got what he needed and cheated. But I don't say that's uh, like ruthless aggression in the same way that they're using it now as common parlance for guys who kind of get the style they're going for 
I yeah, I think that was a bit of a stretch too. Yeah. But he's telling the story that you know Rowdy Roddy Piper was always the guy, and uh, I bought into that. Yeah. Uh, it's funny when I was doing a little bit of research for this, I was like, I was looking at Roddy Piper, and someone said, yeah, he Roddy Piper main evented both Starcade and WrestleMania. And I was like, I know he main evented Starcade. I think it was '96. I was like, when did he wrestle? When did he main event WrestleMania? And I thought, you idiot, the first one. He main evented WrestleMania one. Was that him and him and Orndorff against uh, Mr. T and, and Hulk Hogan? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay. I can be smarter there. That makes sense, but. Uh, Vince also says that Piper's going to beat Mary, Mr. America down, and Vince will come down and take off Mr. America's mask to reveal that he is, in fact, Hulk Hogan. So and I see, thought that yeah. this is still the story that there's no way to establish legally that Mr. America is Hulk Hogan without removing his mask. That this mm-hmm. is like they've consulted the lawyers. This is really the only way to go about it. Right, you need to have some sort of setting where you can take his mask off of him, because uh, you can't you can't order him to do it; he just won't. Right. So it's like, yeah, you got to do it. Yeah, just imagine the lawyers being like, I can't, I don't have to tell you. He's, he's, <laughs> he's a loophole. It's called the Lucha Libre loophole, and you can just, just keep your mask on forever and definitely get away with it. Um, I think I think also just I think Vince could probably take something to the board and be like, I have just cause to believe that Vince that Hulk Hogan is in violation of his contract. And so I, how, why don't we just con- we cancel his contract, and if he wants to prove he's not in violation of it, he can do that. But until then, we're going to cancel his contract, and then Mr. American just gets paid the once, and you live with that instead. That's just you know just some free legal advice to Hulk Hogan. Or, sorry, That's Vince, right. Vince yes, because because they're both both Hulk Hogan and Mr. America are under contract. I forgot mm-hmm. about that. Hogan is getting paid twice here. He's double dipping, as Vince said yeah. a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Colin Tash show us. So what they deem disturbing footage this past week's SmackDown. Uh, it's when Roddy Piper pulled off a fan's uh, fake leg. And, uh, you know, I just just for the record, because I know there are people out there who weren't sure about it. I don't think you should remove people's artificial limbs. But I also don't think that seeing that happen is, quote, disturbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it should be called disturbing i would i would agree with that because yeah presumably people with prosthetic limbs have to take them off for different reasons and yeah yeah it's not disturbing if anything it's weird to be like uh oh can you imagine a, a, like a gross amputee have his leg would be off and like i mean he's a person and he has to do that all the time presumably it has to come off and do a, you kind of you kind of you're doing some kind of more extreme uh, to borrow a, a, a verb from today's society, kind of othering this guy in a well, way. I, I mean, like, what is disturbing is that even in 2003, that WWE would think it was appropriate to have a gag of someone's leg being, prosthetic leg being removed as kind of like this shock gag. I mean, that's the only really disturbing thing here. I mean, it leads to a whole thing. I mean, that's the thing that's so weird about it is that we go to this whole direction where the, this guy, we're about to find out the kid's name and he's going to matter. And he's going to be around and he's going to uh, spoiler. He's going to wrestle a little bit like it's pretty wild what they do. And it just this just feels really strange. Like it's like they ha- it's like they had a guy who had one leg who was wrestling and they were like, well, let's make a fit in the storyline. It just doesn't feel like a natural fit for me. Just odd. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'd be curious to know the backstory about, you know, where they they found him. 
Um, but uh, go on. Uh, I have more to say about uh, Mr. Zach Gelbin. Yeah. And so uh, I will say also it's weird to describe something as disturbing on SmackDown when like a month and a half ago, Vince McMahon uh, stabbed Hulk Hogan with a pen and then signed a contract in his blood for him. I think that would be more disturbing. Like, let's use context, guys. Yeah, fair. This makes more sense. So we have Roddy Piper with Sean O'Hare against Mr. America. Um, at one point, Roddy Piper's coming out, and I just think, why does Roddy Piper not have a Scottish accent? They keep saying he's Scottish, but he has no Scottish accent at all. He has a Canadian accent. It doesn't really make much sense. And uh, Mr. America comes out carrying a steel chair. And the commentators deemed that an equalizer since O'Hare is here with Piper. And I, I totally believe that. I was like, okay, he's got a chair. He's going to whack somebody with it. And then he gets on mic before the match starts. And he brings down Zach Gowan, the young amputee from last week. And that's who the chair is for, Mr. America says. So Zach Gowan's going to come down. And uh, he's you know, he's got a, a cane. And he's wearing the Mr. America shirt. And he's ready to take in the action from ringside. And you know what? He gets um, a big pop from the crowd. Mm-hmm. And today, Matt, I feel like if Zach Galvin came out in the same way, he would get booze. And that tells you everything you need to know about the contemporary WWE universe. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how this would be, how people would take this. Because it's like, it's kind of cheesy. It's also weird. Um, He's like, he's kind of a gimmicky figure because that will be a whole thing. The whole, you know, you have... uh, um, you've one less limbs. What does that mean for you as a wrestler? Like, just strange. But yeah, interesting. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if it would be. Um, if it would be a uh, how they'd be taken. Hard and to also, say. The, the the horrible WWE universe would feel that it's. Um, they would be opposed to it. Um, they wouldn't want to cheer for him. It would be too, I guess, obvious, and. Ultimately, I think they wouldn't cheer for Zach Galvin today because they love America less than the fans of 2003. Well, I mean, I think it's probably true, right? With the, uh, I mean, there's there's nothing like the fervor of the post 9/11 era and the 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 jingoistic yeah. war things too. I mean, that's very much uh, very possible. It'd be interesting, interesting to see. And that's why you know the Mister America shtick. Um, and the things that he does and sort of like this very sort of pure uh, image of America just simply wouldn't resonate with contemporary fans. Yeah. I mean, struggle. I mean, it depends. Yeah. It depends where you are, but um, yeah, I'd be interested to see, I'm interested to see what it would, what the, um, how, how it'll be taken. Uh, so the match starts off here and immediately Sean O'Hare is in the ring and kicking uh, Mr. America with Roddy Piper to start the match. And I was like, okay, this should be an instant disqualification. I don't know why it's not. And uh, it's also just strange. It's like it's not for a title. So you don't have to like you're not to work yourself in knots to try not disqualify somebody like Mr. America could be disqualified right away or could win a disqualification. Then he just leaves and they don't have a chance to take his mask off. Well, they've they've basically established without saying it. I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. Is this a no disqualification match? Because it it effectively is. Effectively is right. The things that are done in it and the number of times that. There's interference right in front of the referee seems to suggest, I thought, from the get go that we're meant to just kind of accept this is no DQ. I mean, if it was, I think there would just be more cheating in some ways because Sean here gets sent away. And so I was surprised by that. But, uh, you know, even after getting beat down, Mr. America 
uh, is in a position to beat up Roddy Piper in the corner. And then he goes outside and he starts choking Shuttle here with his weight belt, which is something that Hulk Hogan used to do when he was Hollywood Hulk Hogan in the 90s to bad guys, but or to good kids, rather, when he was a heel. And I just love that. Um, but that should be illegal, right? That's that's an illegal move. You know, I think we talked about it on the podcast before. I think they've always justified it as like, you know, the the uh, the weight belt is a part of his, his attire. He can wear it there. Uh, you can take it off and do the whole the whole thing. I think uh, currently Cody Rhodes says that sometimes, too, in AEW uh, with the weight belt. Um, but I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's totally worth being, I could see people, you could justify it to me as being, that shouldn't be legal. Like you're just using it for, like, so you come out wearing a, a chair, you can use a chair. That doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's funny to me because Hulk Hogan is like still using the, the choking somebody with a weight belt as a good guy. Sorry, Mr. America, should I say? Um, even though Hulk Hogan used it in the nineties as a heel move just to show how he was like, look how bad I am. I'm like, now I like choke people openly. That's how bad I am as a wrestler. Well, I mean, he doesn't have exactly like a a very diverse uh, set of moves to tap into. So, true. Um, you know, it does add a little flavor. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and so Piper gets his sleeper hold. That's his finisher. Uh, and so we just have an extended period of time here where um, he's in the sleeper. But Mr. America starts to America up instead of hulking up. <laughs> and uh, he gets the big boot. But then he poses before he goes to the leg drop. And that's when Mr. McMahon comes out. He's all mad. He's distracting Mr. America. And so while Mr. America is staring at Vince McMahon at the entrance, uh, Roddy Piper hits a low blow on Mr. America while while Mr. America is distracted by Vince. And the ref is also distracted. And uh, Sean O'Hare gets a pipe. I like the Piper as a pipe. Chewy bagpipes. Maybe hit him with that. And uh, he gets a a pipe, and and Mr. America is held back by, by Piper. And then Sean O'Hare runs and goes to hit him. But, of course, Mr. America ducks. And Piper gets hit with the pipe, obviously. And one leg drop later, Mr. America covers Roddy Piper. And we can see in the corner of the screen that Mr. Man is going into the ring to hop in to break the the pinfall, uh, which I presume would be a disqualification. And again, Mr. America will win. But uh, instead of being able to get in the ring, Zach Gowan, one leg and all from his chair, he jumps up, he grabs him, and he prevents him from breaking up the pin. Of course, Piper gets pinned from that leg drop. One, two, three. And <laughs> leg drop. Yeah. Is that uh, – no, I don't think they're really going for that reference. But, I mean, Zach Galvin had a leg drop on SmackDown. Interesting. A leg was dropped. That's very true. I didn't think about that. I wonder if they will make a joke like that. I could see that happening. Uh, and uh, Vince looks murderous. He's mad at Zach Galvin. Zach Brown runs into the ring, and he's saved from the 57-year-old by running into the protective circle of a 49-year-old. So good for Zach Galvin. <laughs> and Mr. Rekha poses because that's what he does. And from there, we go to the backstage, and we see Triple H is walking back there. Stop for a moment. I just want to say, I think Mr. McMahon is really underrated. Like, his work is incredible. Like, seeing him just absolutely fuming um, after Zach Galvin prevents him from breaking up the pin, and then just seeing, like, uh, him, you know, thinking to himself, oh, I'm going to get you, Hulk Hogan. I'm going to get you. And, you know, seeing that rumination happening, um, you know, I, I just don't think Mr. McMahon gets enough credit as just one of the greatest heel characters of all time. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to expand it here on the podcast, but I think I think I agree with you largely that he's uh, he's he's a he's a great talent. Obviously, he's had a lot of accomplishments uh, in in the industry period. But just as a performer, he's a gifted performer, which is really impressive. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very impressive. Uh, so from there, 
uh, uh, Triple H is in the back. He's walking. He's the uh, world champion. He's on Raw. And he's stopped by Stephanie, his ex-wife, and the current general manager of SmackDown. And she she tells him to be careful. She's trying to establish that Triple H could be in trouble here if he uh, goes too hard against Kevin Nash, his, his opponent for tonight. Um, also um, weird because, yeah, Stephanie used to really hate Triple H and was, like, trying to have uh, Jericho beat him up um, during uh, – when they were feuding the early 2000 – in, in early 2002. So Stephanie has, has softened in her time uh, as general manager far away from uh, from – from uh, Triple H there. So next up, we have Triple H with Ric Flair going up against Kevin Nash, who has Shawn Michaels in his corner. And uh, there's a video package beforehand, and it's essentially that Triple H and Kevin Nash were friends, but Triple H turned on Nash when he showed up on uh, WWE television, and now they don't like each other. And uh, this feud, I think, is weakened because uh, we're only told they were best friends. We've never actually seen it. Um, you know, it's not like they were on WWE television a lot as buddies. Uh, and so, you know, at least when Triple H and Shawn Michaels feuded, we knew they were best friends before because we saw them. You know, it's 97. They're running around being DX together. Uh, it's just, it was just more believable at the time. So uh, it was strange to have it just be like, yeah, they're friends. They're besties. Uh, and the video package also includes when Triple H carjacked a guy in Halifax, which I loved. Uh, that is still out there. I think Triple H should be, uh, you know, prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And uh, I think that that guy who got his car taken should, should seek justice as much as possible. And so Shawn Michaels gets his own entrance to be in the corner of Kevin Nash, completely with pyro, and even hugs Earl Hebner. And it's like, ugh, like he wants us to hate him or something. Now, I will say Ric Flair also gets an entrance. Uh, but this is Charlotte, North Carolina. And he doesn't get any pyro. So that's much better. Like, he's much more justified doing that. And uh, so this is a raw match. And so we'll skip to the end. And like all of Triple H's matches this year, he, he goes to get a sledgehammer, just like he did against um, Scott Steiner. And... Uh, Triple H goes to hit Kevin Nash with a sledgehammer, but Earl Hebner stops him. And so Triple H simply hits Earl Hebner in the chest with a sledgehammer, just taking him out. And uh, for some reason, even though the referee is not able to do any refereeing, uh, the bell rings immediately, indicating that Triple H has been disqualified for hitting Earl Hebner with a sledgehammer. But there's no ref to cue him. So I don't know. Like, since when has this been how wrestling works? Like, the idea that if you are a... Uh, if you're an enterprising timekeeper, you can just decide things are disqualification. That doesn't that doesn't jive with me as far as I'm concerned. And uh, back, you know, even the match is over. Triple H gets jackknife powerbombed in the ring by Nash, uh, and then uh, a bevy of officials and referees uh, try to drag Triple H to safety, pulling him out of the ring. But Kevin Nash take, he gives chase and he gets Triple H. Uh, by the entrance onto the raw announcing platform, kind of by the the old uh, the nitro set, sometimes way of thinking of it there. So he's by the stage, and uh, Ric Flair goes to stop him, but he gets knocked away. And as is Shawn Michaels, and Kevin Nash power bombs Triple H through the announce table. And uh, Nash doesn't clear the table at all, uh, which is fine, uh, but it looks like like the back of Triple H's head probably hit the black piece of the table at the top, which would not be a fun time. And uh, so they show they show a bunch of replays of it. Uh, the commentators do kind of like a hush voice kind of thing. Like, oh, I can't believe this. And so even though Kevin Nash did not win the w, the world title, rather, uh, here at Judgment Day, he uh, he still got, he, as they say, he got his heat back. He still had an opportunity to look like a big, bad, de- big deal. And so um, this feud must continue. And uh, we will see a little bit less of it because it's not uh, on SmackDown at all. And uh, because Raw will have their own pay-per-view coming up in June that we won't be part of or privy to, rather. And uh, so we go from there. And so, yeah, I don't think Chris, you didn't miss much of that match. I would say it's just, you know, they had a whole thing and they did the sledgehammer and powerbomb bits and that was it. 
That sounds about right. I, yeah. I mean, if you had asked me to describe what that, what I imagined that match would be, I'd say like there's like a sledgehammer and a power bomb involved. Yeah, yeah. It lives up to the expectations, even though those expectations are not that impressive. Mm-hmm. So that's what that is. And we visit Austin and Bischoff in the suite, and of course the whole thing is completed by Eric Bischoff, who throws up from excessive food and drink. And he throws up not uh, like know, in a, a coastal elite who can't yes. handle his alcohol. Exactly. Can't handle his drink or all his food. And uh, he does it the way you usually do, which is not puking into like a can, but by puking directly onto a waitress and then opening a window and throwing up on the crowd. And so there's some people <laughs> who got thrown up on by Eric Bischoff. Can you imagine being one of those fans? Like, even if you're like, like, like he's not like it's not like getting sweat on you from a wrestler who's like fighting the crowd. This is like this is a mean general manager who threw up on you that'd be so much less pleasant i mean it would be a pretty incredible story to be able to say that you know judgment day 2003 i got vomited on by eric bischoff i'm sure everybody who suffered that fate um now appreciates that they went through that because of the story they they now have yeah they should have a shirt with that i went to judgment day 2003 <laughs> i got was was thrown up on by eric bischoff and so next up, we have a four-way match for the women's title. Uh, Trish Stratus against Jacqueline against Victoria against Jazz. Uh, it is not elimination. It's one fall to a finish. And so uh, it's a raw match, so we'll skip to the end. And so Trish goes for her Stratisfaction Bulldog, but she gets thrown out of the ring. And she appears to land right on her face because she gets essentially dumped out and lands like directly on it. And uh, she ends up having a bloody mouth and looking mad at the after the match ends. So I think Trish got a pretty rough landing there. And uh, Jazz breaks uh, broke up Jacqueline's Northern Lights suplex on Victoria, and Jazz DDT Jacqueline and got the one two three. So wasn't much to it. Uh, I don't know if Jazz is actually using a DDT at the time. Uh, I feel bad these women wrestlers don't have like proper moves they can actually use. Uh, they're just like ah, oh, you get a DDT, you get a neck breaker. It's like mm-hmm. why are our finishers like transition moves for wrestlers, like <laughs> male wrestlers? It's such it's so so crappy. Mm-hmm. And so then we get the the main event of the show, which is the main event of this podcast, because it is the SmackDown main event. It mm-hmm. is a structure match for the WWE title, pitting the champion, Brock Lesnar, against the challenger, Big Show. And uh, we get the video package beforehand. We see when Big Show swung Rey Mysterio on a stretcher into a post outside the ring, hurting him and prompting this gimmick match to happen when Brock defended Rey's honor. And I will say that Big Show is incredibly lucky because – uh, of all the people to uh, call Big Show out for bad behavior, it was the WWE champion who can actually put up a belt uh, on the line uh, to make it worth your while to face him. Like, all right. And so before the match starts, we get the rules. It's been a long time since there's been a stretcher match, so people don't necessarily know this. And so, of course, there's no DQ. There's no count out. And you have to roll your opponent on a stretcher over the yellow line, which is by the end. It's probably like 30 feet from the ring, maybe. Uh, it's not really like Taz has been saying up to this point. He said, "Oh, you got to roll your opponent out of the arena," and you don't really, you don't even really uh, roll your opponent out of eyesight. Nah, nah, a bit of an exaggeration. Yeah. And so Big Show comes out. He's got his stretcher slash spine board. He's been carrying around for weeks. It's that big orange one. Uh, he even wrote Mysterio Benoit uh, Lesnar on there as like, "Hey, I'm gonna beat these people up." Uh, and so he still has that, and that spine board is going to be a crucial part of this match because it comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brock Lesnar, when he comes out, he gets special flame pyro by the entrance. He gets his he has his ingot ring pyro, but he gets some special pyro right there on the ramp. Uh, so I thought that was curious. And uh, Cole and Taz try to get across to us that Big Show simply cannot be beaten this match because no stretcher is big enough for Big Show to fit on. And surely that's not true. 
Like, I, I don't think that's the case. There's a couple stretchers on wheels by the ring. They look pretty big. And if they're too small, shouldn't WWE be giving grief for this? Like, if you're going to have, if you're going to be a wrestling promotion, you can't be signing matches where one guy simply can't win. And we're just like, you might as well just give the ball to a big show if that was the case. Well, but I think it'd be case. more of a problem that their medical staff would not have stretchers large enough for all of the people who are going to be competing. Yeah, Big, Big, like Big Show could use a stretcher. Issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're not gonna like you can't put them in, like a cart or something like that. It's no. like a unless you have a cart, which you can do that, that'd be fine. But um, yeah, it's a good point. Big Show should be like, what's my health insurance worth? Why do exactly. I why do I do any of this? You guys aren't protecting me. I could get really hurt here. It's like all right. Uh, so Big Show attacks Brock. But Brock quickly grabs the stretcher that Big Show brought with him. And he smacks Big Show with it a bunch. And they go outside and Brock throws Big Show into a stretcher against the post, then we- pushes a wheeled stretcher into him. But then Big Show grabs a spine board, and he smacks Brock with it. He swings it over his head. And then back in the ring, Big Show chokeslams Brock. And he goes outside, and he gets a spine board, and he lays Brock on top of it. And uh, he doesn't strap Brock onto it. Uh, but it's pretty small, so I don't know if he would even fit. And so he grabs the wheeled stretcher, and he puts him on that. And so Big, Star starts, Big Show starts to roll him from the ring down to the entranceway, and he only gets partway to the yellow line before uh, Brock gets Big Show. Uh, and I don't know if I made it clear enough when I said it at the beginning. There's a yellow line on the floor that you have to get a guy across to go through. I presumed that you have to take him from the ring to that uh, line, but that's not the case. You do not need to go from nope. – well, yeah. They don't you make, just have to cross the line while on a stretcher. You could put both stretchers right by the line, put a guy on it, and then push it over, and you'd win. Presumably. I think so. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, Brock is uh, – he's on the wheeled stretcher after getting choked slammed by Big Show, and uh, he gets off of it. Uh, Big Show responds by clotheslining Brock and setting him spilling over the stretcher. It looked quite good. Uh, anytime you look at it, like, ah, oh, they fell dramatically. And so Brock hits Big Show with the spy board again to get, his, get the advantage, and he starts choking with some cables. And then Brock gets Big Show on a stretcher a few feet from the line. Uh, but he's still got cables wrapped around Big Show's throat. So when he starts to push the stretcher, Big Show stays because he's got cables around his throat. And uh, that was significant. But also, like, Big Show fit on that. He fit on the stretcher. It was fine. Sure. They could have used it. So I don't know all the talk of, oh, you can't even fit on there. It's like, well, if you just watch the match, they know it's not the case because they do it. Um, and so uh, Big Show goes after Brock, and Brock starts to head towards the entrance. But as we talked about earlier in the show – the entrance is just scaffolding. So when Brock is by there, he reaches up over the entrance and he does like essentially like a chin up and he kicks Big Show uh, with the uh, his kind of his energy from being on there. And uh, I was uh, I was impressed by that. I was like, that's pretty cool. Uh, and then he uh, he follows that up with a spear, which he's been using a lot of against Big Show and takes him down. And then Big Show even slams Brock uh, – sorry, Brock slams Big Show onto a stretcher, which is also impressive. We just haven't seen a lot of – you know, if you think about, like, how many times you've seen Big Show just get picked up and slammed in a body slam style move, uh, especially, you know, in this period of uh, wrestling at WWE, it did not happen very much. It's pretty rare. Oh, yeah. And, Brock is, like, a few times in this match is just able mm-hmm. to, you know, throw him around like he's a 250-pound guy. Yeah, he does it. He does it with such confidence. It's incredible. Uh, and so they they get back. They're a bit closer to the ring now. And Big Show and Brock are doing kind of a tug of war with a stretcher. And Big Show ends up knocking Brock uh, into it and into the ring. And so Brock is in the ring, and Big Show's on the apron. 
And uh, Brock hits him a couple of times, trying to get him off the apron. And finally, Big Show does. He falls off the apron and lands on a stretcher, which he kind of bounces off of and then falls. So it's kind of a fun moment there where he lands on that and takes a spill. Absolutely. I mean, that's got to be one of the most impressive Big Show bumps of his career. Uh, That's true. Like, that was, like, this is a very large man having to sort of fall backwards directly on this this stretcher. Uh, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine the courage that I would need to muster to do this myself as a much smaller individual. But uh, pretty impressive Big Show bump. I think that's what really, you know, there's kind of a point in the match where, like, you're sort of watching, um, but you're maybe not really invested. And then you, and and like, maybe you're thinking, like, ah, this isn't that great. I didn't want to see Big Show Brock Lesnar in a main event again. Yeah. Um, But then it's like, oh, wow. Okay, suddenly I'm invested. And this was it. Yeah. It it was a cool moment. And so from there, Brock, he kind of hops out of the ring past Big Show. And uh, he starts heading towards the entrance, and he points to his head to start like, ah, I'm a thinker, <laughs> and, and and Brock leaves. And the commentator's like, what is he doing? Because Big Show is – he's near a stretcher, but he fell off of it when he fell off the apron. And is he Bro- getting Bro- a larger stretcher? Yeah, I mean that would be one thought. It just gets like a bed, like a big queen-sized bed-style stretcher maybe. That'd be, that could work. And uh, Big Show rolls back into the ring, and with Brock Lesnar gone, all of a sudden we hear Rey Mysterio's music play. And he pops up, and he comes in to hit Big Show, and he hits a 619 on Big Show. He's getting his revenge here after so many weeks of uh, fighting with him. And also, he kind of got revenge on him uh, on SmackDown, too. Uh, and, but Big Show knocks him off his feet as soon as he can, right after the 619. So Ray didn't do that much good. In theory, he distracted him momentarily. Mm-hmm. And Big Show signals he's going to choke slam Ray, but then suddenly, part of the set breaks open. And out comes Brock Lesnar, and he's driving a forklift. And he steers wildly right around and up to the ring. I was quite impressed by it because he's whipping around in the uh, he's whipping around in the forklift, but he's doing it quite with a lot of speed, especially like setting up. Yeah, he's a uh, pretty impressive forklift driver. Yeah, okay. he might have a future in uh, working in a factory. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and they so, timed it well. I mean, I guess they needed enough time to get him to the forklift and for him to you know be able to confidently drive to the ring. So the rate distraction really worked well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it did. And uh, he's uh, the, the the set breaks open and he's there he, when he, he. Yeah. So like I said, Brock is setting up the forklift there and Ray jumps on Big Show's shoulders. It's such a distraction after distraction because Brock leaves and Ray distracts Big Show and then the forklift distracts Big Show and then Ray distracts Big Show from the forklift and Ray gets tossed off. Uh, but then Brock Lesnar is scaled onto the top of the forklift and he dives from the top of the forklift into the ring to close on Big Show, which is an incredible spot. It's a really oh, fun-looking thing. Mm-hmm. It's super cool. If you haven't seen it before, I mean, it's a real good testament to, once again, just how much distance Brock Lesnar can get. And uh, it's fun to bring in this this whole element you wouldn't have expected in a, in a stretcher match like this. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I was uh, wondering, like, is it possible for Brock to actually make this distance? So um, it was, you know, I, I guess maybe because you're coming – at it from today's perspective where I don't think he would try such a stunt. Yeah. But uh, back in 2003, that man could fly. Absolutely. He uses it. He uses his athletic prowess to great uh, effect here. Mm-hmm. And so Brock is revved up. He hit this great spot. He's excited. And so he hits Big Show with a spear in the corner. 
And then he hits a vertical suplex on Big Show. Like, it's no problem. And I was the most impressed by that, maybe, in the match. Because I was like, I don't know if I've ever seen someone just suplex the Big Show. Oh, yeah. Regular vertical suplex style. Like, no big deal. Because it's not even like he's like, ah! It's just like, Whoa, boom. He, like, hits it, like, not that dramatically. Like, is has there been anybody else to vertical suplex the Big Show? Maybe in WCW is my only thought. But, like, I'm, I'm sure I'm almost positive that it wouldn't have happened in WWE before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would think. And so he follows up the suplex of the Big Show with an F5, Brock does. And then Brock grabs a spine board and he puts it on the forklift. This is all part of his strategy here. And then he rolls Big Show onto the spine board onto the forklift. And so Brock hops into the forklift. And he and he, before he turns around and drives away too far, he lifts Big Show high in the air. Because you can do that with the forklift. You can lift this pallet that Big Show is on. He raises him high in the air. And uh, he backs all the way up to the entrance and past the yellow line. And the referee is right there to see when Big Show's uh, spine board stretcher body goes over the yellow line. And when he does, the referee signals to the timekeeper. And Brock Lesnar has retained his title by beating Big Show in a stretcher match. And uh, Brock, even after the match, he raises Big Show even higher still. So Big Show is just like flat like a big dead fish. (laughs) On this thing, I don't know how high it is in the air, 15, 20 feet maybe. It's, it's pretty impressive. They must have really tested it out to see how high you can have it and not tip over with big, chunky Big Show up there. Do you think that it was meant to kind of call back to the introduction where they've got the guy on the noose? Like, do you think that this oh, was meant I, to be evocative of that? I didn't think of that. Maybe. I guess I guess it's possible. I mean, this just felt this felt more like kind of like more like, yeah, we did it and less macabre. <laughs> I would say. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the the. Positive energy continues because Brock hops, hops onto the forklift and he raises his WWE title over his head as the victorious champion. And with that image in our mind, we go off the air. And Judgment Day 2003 is in the books. Chris, I'd love to get your final thoughts on the show. Uh, we On this podcast, for, for long time listeners, you know what we do. We rate it using the SmackDown video games of this era. And uh, so if you thought it was good, you say, just bring it. If you say it was like, eh. Just shut your mouth. If it was a bad show, you would say, here comes the pain. And so, Chris, I'd love to get your thoughts on the night and your final ranking. You know what? Certainly, if this was a, like, regular SmackDown TV show, it would be a just bring it. Yeah. But given this is a pay-per-view and one has higher expectations, I'm going to say shut your mouth. It was a little bit middle of the road. It was certainly better than I ever could have imagined it would be based on the matches that were advertised. Like that stretcher match ended up being great. Credit yeah. to the big show. Yeah. Um, I didn't think it would be that good. Um, the bikini match was able to tell a story that was better than you would really expect from a bikini match. Um, so it exceeded expectations, but I still wouldn't say that it was a remarkable pay-per-view yeah i think it's i think it's a completely fair um take take on it for sure uh the ladder match was good stretcher match was pretty good i would give it maybe a mile just bring it honestly like if i was just going to tell somebody now i'd be like go on the WWE network watch the ladder match watch the stretcher match you kind of get what you need out of that and you can move on and have a good time from there because they're pretty decent little gimmick matches so that's okay the other stuff is really shut your mouth kind of stuff right. uh and so, yeah, that's we're going to close the book on Judgment Day 2003, the last of the of this era, at least, where the, both the brands are coming together for a non-Big Four pay-per-view. And so from here on out, uh, we have a long stretch 
toward our next show, uh, which is going to be, I believe, Vengeance 2003 in July. We have all of the re- all of rest of May, all of June, and most of July to get through there. It's like 10 weeks of SmackDowns with no pay-per-view in sight. There is uh, the... Um, there is the 200th episode of SmackDown, which will be coming up here, kind of the halfway point, which is interesting, and with and with a very fun, um, very fun conclusion in that. So we're looking forward to talking about that on the show. But we are about to enter a a long stretch here where there's the area pay per view in sight, and we're we're changing up the air entirely. So next week's show we'll be covering the May 22nd, 2003 edition of SmackDown. We got to find out, you know, who's going to be uh, chasing Brock Lesnar, uh, who is going to be, you know, what's happening with Big Show? Is Ray back in the picture? Uh, you know, our team angle going to be going after the tag belts again. They're trying to regain them. Uh, how, how is Sable going to come back from being uh, clearly dunked upon by Tori? Uh, what will that lead to? Will she be more uh, encouraged to go in, in a darker direction? Who knows? You got to you got to join us next week, folks. You just have to do it. And uh, you also have to join me in thanking Chris for coming on the podcast and breaking down Jeff to Day three with me. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for being here, buddy. Super happy to be on the pod again, Matt. Love it. Love it. Uh, and so, folks, uh, if you like the podcast, I encourage you to share it with a friend. Uh, you can follow us on our social media platform, SmackDown6Pod on Instagram and on Twitter. If you want to go to Apple Podcasts and get, set a rating for us there, we'd love that. That helps us to uh, expand the audience for this show. And uh, I also just want you know, just to close by saying, uh, you know, there's times in life where you may not know how to accomplish the task ahead of you. But I just encourage you that if you think about it long enough, if you go backstage and find a forklift, you can lift any problem you need.